And as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, as we turn a corner in this Gospel and we begin to make our way into one of the Lord Jesus' lengthy discourses, we want to consider the miracle this morning that sets the stage for that discourse. And so we want to focus this morning on John 5, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 9. Let us hear the Word of God together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us unite our hearts and pray one final time together as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's let's pray together. Father, we bless You this morning for the light of Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed to us in Your Word the words of eternal life that speak to us first and foremost of the glories of Christ, that teach teach us of His glorious person and His wonderful work in our behalf. Father, as we come to this passage this morning as Your people, we pray that You would open our eyes to see and to behold wonderful things from Your Word. That we would stand amazed and in awe of the glory of Christ, the condescension of Christ to come and to dwell among sinners and to attend to the physical and more than that, the spiritual need of sinners. That the Prince of Glory Himself would come as a servant in order not to be served, but to serve and to save that which was lost. Father, cause us to wonder at the amazing pity and compassion Christ has for sinners and the power that He possesses to save His people and to impart new life so that they arise and begin to walk in newness of life. Father, instruct our minds, we pray. But more than instructing our minds, we pray that Your Spirit would also create through the truth new affections, that our wills would be energized by Your Spirit's power to obey the truth, 
to walk in light of the truth and to spread the truth. Father, be merciful to us. We pray for any in our midst who are here and are strangers to the grace that is found in Your Son. Lord, have compassion and pity on them, we pray. Open their minds to the beauty of the freedom of grace that is offered in Christ. We pray that they today would be done with despairing over sin and that they would come and find rest for their weary souls by resting in the only One who can rescue us from sin. Be merciful, Father, we pray, for Your glory. We ask that You would be our help. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we move along this morning into a new chapter in John's Gospel. We, have, we spent a decent amount of time in chapter 4 considering Jesus' ministry among the Samaritans and then His brief stay in Galilee. And now, once again in chapter 5, He returns to Jerusalem, which is the heart of Israel's worship. It is the place where the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin always had their ever-watchful eye upon Him. And the occasion, verse 1, that brings him here was to attend a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know, we're not told for certain which feast of the Jews this is, but we do know that he attends this feast in order to work and in order to make himself known publicly. And to do that, he does it in a very controversial way. He performs a miracle at this feast on the Sabbath. And if you're familiar with the beliefs of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, you know that that already is controversial, to heal on the Sabbath. But not only does He heal on the Sabbath, He deliberately breaks the traditions of the elders by telling this man to take up his bed and to walk on the Sabbath. And that is what sets the stage for this pivotal and profound discourse that will occupy the remainder of chapter 5. And so this morning, what we'll do is we'll consider the miracle itself in verses 1-9, through and then in subsequent weeks, we will make our way to and through the discourse. So, let's begin with our exposition, and then secondly, we will turn to doctrine and application. So, exposition, it's at this point that I would encourage you, in particular, to have your Bibles open as we work our way through the text and understand what God is saying to His people here. Beginning in verse 1. After this was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. Okay, so John begins by kind of setting the scene for us here. Uh, Nehemiah mentions the rebuilding of this Sheep Gate, so this is not an unfamiliar thing in Jerusalem. But John brings our attention not to the gate so much, but by this gate, there is a pool of water which in Hebrew is called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. That's a very fitting title for this pool considering what we're going to read. And depending on your translation, this pool has five porches or five roofed colonnades or five porticos. Um, depending on the translation, you might have any, any one of those. And basically... These are covered walkways. Okay? They are porches, if you will, upheld by pillars. 
And it's interesting, we've actually excavated what is very likely this very pool, the Pool of Bethesda, and um, in terms of the arrangement of these walkways, just so you can kind of have a, a picture in your mind, if you think of a tennis court, uh, a tennis court has the four uh, external you know, boundaries, and then the net runs right through the center of it. That's where these porticos are arranged. And so you've got this massive pool, and around the four sides you have four porticos, and then running right across the middle of the pool is this fifth portico or porch. That's what John is describing for us here. Now, verse 3, in these, that is, in these porches, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, you've got a picture in your mind's eye. This, he, John says, a great multitude. This pool is like a hospital. And it's a very, in a very vivid way, it demonstrates the heart of Christ towards sinners. That Christ, when He comes into the world, He did not come to associate Himself with the rich or the honorable or the privileged, but He places Himself here among the needy, among the helpless, among the outcasts. And that in itself speaks to us, us of a bigger picture regarding His entire mission into this world that He came to heal not those who are well, but those who are sick with sin. He came to save sinners of all stripes who know that they are helpless on their own to deal with the problem of sin. And He came to lift those kinds of people up from their misery and to show them mercy. That is what the following discourse will be centered around as we'll see in the coming weeks. He will open up the life that He has in Himself that He gives to whom He wills. Now notice... The folks who are at this pool are not just people with common maladies. These are not just people with the common cold or the flu or, or you know, things like that. These are maladies that are beyond human ability to heal. Blindness, lameness, paralysis. And that's important because in Jesus healing this man who has been infirmed for 38 years, we find out, Jesus is showing that in Him there is more life than there is death and sin and decay in the world. And He's showing that what He can do for this physical body that by all accounts seem to be beyond redemption, He can do that for the sin-sick soul. And so He comes to this place where there's a great multitude filling these, these corridors, these walkways. These are helpless people. These are desperate people. Probably many of them have come from afar and they have waited a long time for healing. And all of them are hoping this day for healing, but not from Christ, but rather from these waters. And we're told that this man specifically is one who has tried again and again. We don't know how many times he has been here, how long he has laid here, but he has tried to be healed by this pool and he has been unsuccessful. And he's not the only one. There were multitudes of them. Now let me make an application to you if you're here and you're an unbeliever this morning. These people who were afflicted in the body, they knew in a very keen way what it was to be afflicted. They knew what it was to be sick and in desperate 
want of relief. And they applied themselves earnestly to the remedy. The only remedy that they knew that they might apply themselves to. But if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you also are sick. Even though you might not even realize it. The the disease of sin has ravaged your heart just like it's ravaged my heart and every Christian in this room's heart. And it's made you an enemy of God. And part of sin's deception is that it makes you numb to its danger. And so I want to encourage you, unbeliever, with even more earnestness than this man and these people applied to these waters for the healing of their bodies, may you set yourself to applying yourself earnestly and diligently to Christ for the healing of your souls. Now, I want to I talk to you. Probably some of you noticed the textual variant in the text. I meant to mention it before I read and I forgot to do that. I want to talk for a moment about the textual variant here. If you've got the ESV or the NASB or the NIV or, or several other translations, your verse 3 does not contain the words waiting for the moving of the waters at the end of verse 3. And you'll notice you don't have a verse 4. But rather, in your Bible, it just jumps from verse 3 straight to verse 5. And the reason for that, and I'm not going to get into the depths of, of textual criticism and things like that, but just a brief explanation. The reason for that is that um, the end of verse 3 and the totality of verse 4 as they appear in the New King James and the King James are questioned by some as to their original authenticity. Okay? And the reason for that is because people who do textual criticism have seen most of our earliest manuscripts don't contain these words. And so some have concluded that maybe what happened is that early along in church history, someone made a comment in order to kind of explain more thoroughly what was going on here, and eventually it accidentally just kind of got wrapped up into the text itself and it became a part of the textual tradition. Okay? Now, like I say, the Lord's Day sermon is not the place for me to do a, a seminary lecture for you on textual criticism, and so I'm not going to even open all of those details up with you. But what I do want you to see is this is that even if we didn't have verses 3 and 4, and regardless of where you fall on that, the following verses of this passage, which are indisputably original, they assume the exact thing verses 3 and 4 say, minus the detail of the angel. Okay, So look down at verse 7. This is right after Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? And in verse 7, the sick man answered. Okay, So, Jesus has just answered him, do you want to be made well? And where does this man's mind immediately go to? It goes to the pool, right? The water. He says, sir, I have no man to put me into the the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So, even without the further explanation of verses 3 and 4, by this man's response, we see that God in a very unique and somewhat mysterious way would occasionally visit this pool in Jerusalem. The waters would be stirred up and then the first one who got in would be healed. And I admit that's very mysterious. And, and honestly, there are questions that abound in my mind and not only mine, but many commentators' minds that we're simply not given the answer to. For instance, 
we are not told when this pool started and stopped to have these healing properties, if you want to put it that way. Um, I personally, I tend to think that Calvin's view has um, a lot going for it. Calvin believes that God gave this sign to Israel probably shortly before the time of Messiah in order to remind Israel that He had not utterly forsaken them and left them. And in order to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah who was fast approaching, who would come Himself with healing in His wings. And perhaps that is the reason. It's very interesting. We don't see this pool and its healing property spoken about by any Jewish author of that day. And it's perhaps that very reason that we don't see them mentioning this miraculous pool because assuming this pool ceased to give these healing, uh, this ability to heal after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, naturally the Jews wouldn't want to give that credence. They wouldn't want to give credence to the idea that the one we crucified was indeed the consolation of Israel. So Jesus, he's in this place, a multitude of, of invalids and others who are afflicted, they're waiting for the stirring up of these waters trying to get in first. And Jesus comes into this scene and He focuses on one man who doesn't even have a friend to help Him into the pool when and if the waters are stirred up. And this, you've got to realize, 38 years, this man has been suffering longer than many people of that day even lived. Okay. So, he has known affliction the vast majority of his life. And he has tried again and again to become the beneficiary of this pool. And every time he tries, someone else gets there before him and he has watched them walk away healed. Meanwhile, he remains in the same state. And so verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And verse 9, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. The very thing that this man was unable to do, Jesus commands him to do. And along with the command, went forth the divine power to grant what Jesus commanded. Immediately, John says, the man is made well. And probably in a way that words are unable to even describe, suddenly he felt his body made whole. And where before there was weakness and immobility in an instant, suddenly there was strength and ability. Not slow recovery. Not healing by steps. He is made well and he immediately obeys Christ and he picks up his mat and he begins to walk. Now, when a man who has been crippled for 38 years suddenly stands up, and starts carrying his mat out of the place, that's enough on its own to turn heads and to get people talking. And anyone seeing that with an unbiased mind would be talking not about the fact that he's carrying his mat, but about the fact that he's just been somehow miraculously healed. And yet, it is this that sets in motion, as I said, the evil intentions of the religious leaders who care more about their self-imposed traditions than they do about the fact that Messiah is in their midst. And that's where we'll leave off this morning. We'll pick up next time with the Jews' sinful reaction to this miracle and the man's response. But that'll close our exposition. Let's 
Turn our attention now to our doctrine and application. Doctrine and application. I have two things for us this morning by way of instruction and devotion for us as God's people of how this text not only instructs our minds theologically, but how it warms our hearts and encourages and comforts the hearts of God's people as we see here a glimpse of the glories of Christ and the mercy of Christ. So we'll combine these doctrine and application. I have two things and I'll give them to you one at a time as we go. Number one, doctrine and application is this. Christ came into the world to save helpless and weak sinners. Okay? Christ came into the world to save helpless and weak sinners. Could we ask for a better picture of the condescension of Christ to sinners than for Him to come and to purposefully place Himself in the midst of the multitude of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And to see Him eager to do them good. You've got to understand, these people were the outcasts of society. They were the downcasts. They were the shamed. And yet Christ, the King of glory, is not ashamed to tend to their needs. And... Christian and unbeliever, both alike, that illustrates Christ's mission in the world. That He did not come for the healthy. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for the spiritually blind and the spiritually lame and sinners who are bruised and beaten by the fall. This world is though many people don't see it, a hospital of sick and dying sinners. And Christ came to those people. Unbeliever, if you're here and you're not in Christ, listen to me for the next few minutes. I plead with you. May you let the balm of the Gospel bind up and soothe your troubled soul. The Gospel that Christ brings, the good news that Christ brings is sweet to the sinner's ears. You unbeliever, you are here in God's providence and you carry with you, even if you don't like to think about it and you try not to think about it, you carry with you, you know deep down, a very, very shameful past. Perverted thoughts. Cruel deeds. Poisonous words treacherous acts of betrayal. And honestly, at times, probably some of those things come back into your memory and they are so shameful that you don't know what to do except for to shake your head and to try to put the thoughts out of your mind. And you're sitting here this morning in a church and you're listening to me and you're wondering, how does He know? And I know because I'm in the same boat with you. I have the same shameful past. But you know what Jesus' disposition is to you? He says to you, sinner though you are, He says to you, as He said to this man, do you want to be healed? Do you want your guilty conscience cleansed? Do you want the fear of judgment taken away? Do you want a firm confidence 
that God will not bring into judgment your sins against you on judgment day, Christ says to you in the Gospel, apply to Me by faith and I will heal you. Period. Grace is that free. Christ is really that willing to have mercy upon sinners. Such that it doesn't matter how advanced the disease of sin has gone in our lives. It doesn't matter how recently you have fallen. Whether it be thieves or adulterers or murderers or liars or brawlers or deceivers, Christ will receive every single last one of them who applies to Him by faith. And you might be here and you've heard, you've studied perhaps other religions. You've perhaps even very likely heard false so-called Gospels that told you that the Gospel is just be a decent person. Right? And God would be pleased with you. My friend, that is not the Gospel. That is law. The Gospel isn't for good people. Because first of all, there are no good people apart from union with Christ and His grace that He gives. The Gospel is for wretched sinners who recognize themselves as such who apply to a perfect and merciful Christ. The Gospel is not first clean yourself up at least a bit to get to a certain point and then maybe when you're fit you can apply to Christ for grace. That is a false Gospel that undermines the freedom of grace. Christ does not say to the fornicator, first get married. Make things right. Clean your life up a bit first. And then maybe I can receive you. He doesn't say to the drunkard, first get sober. Get your life in order and then we'll talk. In the Gospel, Christ says to you, sinner, in your broken state, come to Me without delay, with all of your sores and all of your wounds, as sick as you are with sin, and I will give you rest. And then, after you have applied to Me by faith, then, by virtue of My grace, then we can go to work on changing you from the inside out. Then, Christ says, I will teach you how to deal with the consequences of sin in a righteous way. Then I will teach you how to walk in an upright manner. Then I will work within you the power to fight and put off sin and to put on righteousness. But you sinner can't even begin to do those things until you come to Christ first as you are for grace. My friend, one of my favorite hymns, Come Ye Sinners, we, we sing this line, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. If you come to Him, He will not despise you. He will clothe you in His righteousness. He won't say to you, maybe if you had not done this and this, he will not say to you, you know, I have had grace enough for others, but you have outsinned my grace. You know, the devil loves to keep sinners out of heaven by paralyzing them 
in their sinfulness and convincing them that there's no point for such a case as mine to even go to Christ. And I want to say to you, unbeliever, don't believe demonic logic. Believe the Word of God. 1 Timothy 1.15 This statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If the whole world right now all at once were to turn in faith to Christ, it would not drain Christ of His mercy. And indeed, there would still be in Christ enough mercy for a thousand other worlds. You are offered grace this morning. Come to Christ that you may have life. Don't linger afar off. Don't wallow in your sickness hoping in vain for another remedy. Apply this day to the One who says to you, do you want to be healed? Christian, how does this apply to us? Christian, it's not just the unbeliever who needs to hear about a merciful, willing, gracious Christ. It's you as well. It's me. If you're, if you're like me, and I know you are, you sometimes think back on the time when you first came to know Christ. And you remember how you rejoiced at the willingness of Christ to receive you. Even though you are aware, at least to some degree, you are aware of how terrible you were and how sick with sin you had become, how shameful your life was, and yet at the same time, you had a glimpse and a belief that Christ said to you without condition, come to Me and I will give you rest. And we look back on that moment and we remember how the chains fell off when the freedom of grace hit our souls and we thought to ourselves, how amazing is my Christ that He accepts a wretch like me and He calls me His brother, sinner though I am. And yet, too often, Christian, as we move along in our Christian life, and we get some time under our belts as Christians and we begin to think to ourselves, well, now that I've taken His name to myself for some time and man, my, my life ought to be better than it is and my sins ought to have been pulled up deeper from the roots than they have been and I've sinned again and again against divine love and we, we say to ourselves, I, I just don't know how ready Christ is to receive me yet again. You ever struggle with that? A struggle to come to Christ in view of the overwhelming sight of your sins that you have just committed against Him. And even though we might not verbalize it, we are in our souls wrestling with the questions, could His grace really be so free? Could His forgiveness and condescension really extend even over a sinner like me? Christian, listen to me. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And don't forget that. In fact, even if you forget everything else, do not forget that though I am a great sinner and will continue to be one until Christ brings me to Himself, that does not change for a moment the fact that Christ is a greater Savior. 
There is more grace in Him than there is sin in us. Christian, here's one amazing thing about Christ. And He's very different from us in this. Christ doesn't change. Hebrews tells us He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Christian, Christ's heart towards you as He sits in heaven right now is just as full of grace and compassion and pity as it was when He was here with sinners on earth. Okay, You think of all the knucklehead things that the disciples did with Jesus while He was on earth. Perhaps the ultimate example being Peter's actual denial of his Lord three times. Right? One of the worst things probably that a Christian can do. And yet, what was the heart of Christ towards Peter in the wake of that? It's stunning when you realize the freedom of grace and Christ's disposition towards His people. Christ seeks Peter out. Peter denies Christ three times and Christ comes after Peter. Peter doesn't come to the Lord. Peter goes away to Galilee to go fishing. And Jesus, in pursuit of His disciple, comes and graciously seeks Peter out by name and restores him. Christian, you very well may be today bruised and broken by sin and filled with shame. And and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing for us to feel shame over our sin. But you also need to not let shame cause you to doubt the Gospel. You can't let shame sinfully keep you from coming again to Christ. Christian, Christ's disposition towards you is Hebrews 2.11. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Yes, that applies to you. You may be ashamed of yourself, but Christ is not ashamed of His brothers. He knows you're weak. He knows you're needy. And He says to you again and again, come to Me to be made well. Brothers and sisters, we come to Christ every day as spiritual invalids. We just don't feel it every day as we ought to. Even on our best day and our greatest day of sanctification, we are coming to Christ as the ungodly and we come to Him not on the basis that I am worthy to be accepted, but we come to Him on the basis of His promise to give grace to His people. And He delights when His people come to Him again and again and they say not just how great was my Christ at the beginning, but how great is my Christ. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is still the lover of my soul. And Christian, just a word of exhortation and encouragement, we need to be the kinds of brothers and sisters who give that kind of Christ to our brothers and sisters who are downcast and ashamed because of sin. Because when we are filled with a vision of our sins, and that's almost all we can see, it can become very easy for us not to be able to see the Gospel clearly. And we need brothers and sisters who can see through our nearsightedness and can remind us and kind of snap us awake out of that and say, no brother, this is who Christ is. This is 
His Word. This is His example we have. And brother, He has not changed for you. That brings us to the second point of doctrine and application this morning. A bit briefer. Second point of doctrine and application. We see, secondly, in this text, a picture of sovereign grace. We see a picture of sovereign grace. Those words to this man, rise, take up your bed, and walk, is the display of sovereign grace to this man. For this man, he experienced sovereign grace that manifested itself physically in his body, but it is a picture of what has happened spiritually to every single person who is a Christian. And so, we see two glorious aspects of Christ's person and work in this text. Not only do we see in this passage the the willingness of Christ to receive sinners, we see also the sovereign efficacy of His power to bring His people to Himself. To bring them to where they experience the grace that He has purchased for them. Think about the parallels. You've got this man... He has been languishing here for 38 years. Helpless to do anything for himself. Doesn't even have a friend to help him. And left to himself, he will die in the state that he is in. And it's into that situation that the Lord Jesus sovereignly interposes. And you know, it's very interesting. I don't know if you noticed. It's very interesting that in this dialogue, there is no indication of faith on this man's part. Unlike other uh, stories that we've gone through, this man, he, he did not seek Jesus out. He didn't request that Jesus come and see him. Jesus came to him. And even when Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? He starts talking about the water. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I want to be made well and I know that you are able to do it. And it's to this man, when he least expected it, that he is surprised by grace. And he hears the words from Christ, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And his body rose to newness of life. Not because he asked for it, not because he sought it, not because he cooperated with grace, but because Christ commanded it. Christian, that is a picture of precisely what happens when God, by His grace, gets a hold of the sinful heart. And Christ will highlight this as we make our way through this discourse that follows this miracle. Verse 21, He will declare to them that the Father, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. Verse 25, He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Christian, this is the truth that rings out throughout the Scriptures from beginning to end that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end and it is all of God from beginning to end. The reason you and I will most certainly be raised up on the last day with Christ is because the Father gave you to His Son before the world began 
and the Son purchased your redemption by His life and death and resurrection, and then Christ, by His sovereign Spirit, came to your cold, dead heart and said, Arise and walk in newness of life. And like this man, when that command was given, it brought forth the result it commanded. And you arose. The Spirit causing you to be born from above. And in an instant, even though it might have been imperceivable to us, in an instant we were changed. And suddenly, the lights came on. And suddenly, Christ became everything and His Word became precious. And the sin that I once loved suddenly became my enemy. And even though from our brand new to being a Christian perception, we didn't even really realize God had been at work at all, you begin pouring over the Scriptures and you realize, I love Him because He first loved me. And I love Christ today and trust Christ today because He loved me before I loved Him and before I trusted Him. And it was He who said to my lifeless soul, Arise. In a couple minutes, we're going to sing And Can It Be before the Lord's table. And we're going to sing this line. And I want you to think about this, Christian, as we sing it. We're going to sing reminding one another of where we were and where Christ has brought us to. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Now, you can call that by whatever name you want to call that by. But that is one of those prongs that upholds the diamond of the Gospel. That those whom the Father chooses the Son procures their salvation, and the Son by His Spirit sovereignly applies that salvation to them effectually and irresistibly. He begins the work in us that He will complete, and it's for that reason that we have confidence we will make it to the end. Because the work begun is not something begun by me, but begun by the Lord Himself. And so Christian... Look to the One who is faithful. Look to the One who does not abandon the work of His hands. And look to the One who loved you when you were loveless and gave Himself for you who will most certainly finish what He has begun. Because the same life He sovereignly imparted to you to make you alive initially is the same life that He continues to supply to you to carry you along. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table, let us come with these things on our hearts. Thankfulness for what Christ has done for us in the past. Confidence for who and what Christ is for us now. And hope for what He will yet do for us on that great day when He greets us in glory inexpressible and perfects that which concerns us. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for His condescension to save wretches such as us. Father, truly, we cannot think lowly enough of ourselves. We have never thought about our sin the way that You have thought about it. We have never grieved and been ashamed of our iniquities to the level that we ought to be. And yet Christ, knowing full well the sinfulness of our sins, came among us and dwelt among us. The righteous among the unrighteous. And He came to redeem His sinful people to Himself. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for the hope that it gives to the troubled heart when we are faced with the reality of our ongoing struggles with sin. The struggles we have when we genuinely fail against you, uh, fail you and sin against You and we have no excuse. What a comfort it is, Father, that we know that in the Gospel, because of Christ, You are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And that Christ does not turn His back on us when we so tragically turn our backs as it were on Him. We thank You that we have the perfect Mediator who perseveres in loving us to the end. Father, we pray that these things would be on our hearts as we come to the Lord's table. We pray that You would lift up our hearts in praise and thankfulness for Christ who is our all who has shed His blood once for all and risen from the dead to purchase His church. Father, what a blessing it is to be members of the redeemed community of the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would rejoice at this table in our unity with one another. We pray, Father, that we would be those who are walking according to the Gospel who are applying the Gospel to our relationships. We pray that this table would remind us of our duty to love one another, to not harbor resentment towards one another, but to forgive as we have been forgiven freely. Father, shape Your people into the image of Your Son, we pray. We thank You for Your mercies to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.